The clock just turned to 9.30, so I always have enough content to give us 45 minutes, so I like to start right on the dot so that I don't have to cut myself off. So welcome to Sunday School. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into our lesson for the morning. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this morning, for the ability to look into your word. I pray that you would be with me as I speak, uh, that I would feel the weight of what we are discussing today, that I would treat it appropriately. I ask that you would bless the time of preparation, and I ask that you would be with us this morning, that all of us as we listen, as we engage in your word, that we would be challenged by it, that we would understand it. I ask that your spirit would give us the ability to, to not just understand it, but also to apply it to our lives. And I pray that you would <clears throat> use this for our benefit and for your glory. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. How often do you consider the presence of God? Not just God, not just considering who God is, but considering the presence of God. How often do you think about this reality and explore the depths of what it means? Christians confess that God is omnipresent, and in our church we talk a lot about the presence of the Spirit in the church and in the Word of God. So you may consider God's presence more than the average person, but when was the last time you just sat and pondered what it means that God dwells among us? Think about how he can do that, how God can dwell among us. Think about why God dwells among us. Ask yourself what God does when he dwells in the midst of his people. And consider the question of why God's redemptive plan includes a desire to dwell with the people he saves. Why doesn't he just want to why does he want to be with his creation when he could just justify them, make them right? and then move on with his life. These are some of the questions that I've been considering as I've studied the book of Haggai, because the theme of the book centers on this very topic, the topic of God dwelling with his people. Haggai approaches this theme from several different angles, and we will be served well by this book of scripture if we allow the prophet to lead us around the idea of God's presence and listen as he expounds on the glorious realities that lie within this truth. Now, as you open up to Haggai, it's near the end of the Minor Prophets. It's the third to the last book of the Old Testament, and it's wedged right between the two Zs. It's right after Zephaniah. It's right before Zechariah. So if you find a book of the Bible that starts with Z, you're pretty close to Haggai. It's near the end of the Old Testament. And this morning, as we look at the book of Haggai, we're first going to unpack the background of the book, and then, because this book is only 38 verses long, we're going to get to walk through all of the content of the book, which I'm excited about. So first the background, and then the outline. But as we look at the background, we're first going to consider the author very briefly, and then spend a lot of time unpacking the historical context of the book of Haggai, because that's really going to be essential for us to understand what the book means. Now, the book is ascribed to the prophet whose name it bears, Haggai, and Haggai means festal. It's a reference to the celebrations and festivals that Israel was called to celebrate throughout the year, events like the Passover or the Feast of Booths. And Haggai is labeled as a prophet. Beyond this, we don't really have any further biographical information about him. We just know that he is Haggai the prophet. However, the prophet is mentioned in another book, the book of Ezra. 
which helps us set the scene for the historical setting. And as we've gone through the Pentateuch and the historical books and many of the earlier prophets, something that you may have noticed always hanging in the background, kind of hovering above all of the narrative, all of the teaching of the prophets, there's been this dark cloud. It's been something that the prophets, the leaders, the kings have pointed to to say, hey, think about this, you need to obey. And that ominous reality was the possible exile from their land that was promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28. This was the final curse that Israel would bring upon themselves if they failed to follow God, they failed to obey his law. And this dark cloud turned from a possibility to a reality during the reign of Jehoiakim in 2 Kings chapter 25, as Judah was carried away to Babylon and the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Then many of the later prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel wrote from within this reality, from within the time of the exile. And in a real sense, the exile can be seen as a fulcrum for the entire Old Testament. It may not be the most important theme in all of the Old Testament, but it's truly a fulcrum where everything up to 2 Kings 25 led up to that. And then a significant portion of the Old Testament was spent inside that. But in the book of Ezra, that fulcrum starts to shift. We're now on the other side of this center point. In Ezra, we see the balance tilting as the exile moves from a present reality to a past memory in the minds of Israel. And as we looked through the prophets, they told us that this was going to happen. The words of hope penned out of the deepest depths of despair resound louder and louder as they emerge from this backdrop of the exile. Back in Deuteronomy, God had promised to bring his people out of exile when they repented, when they turned back to him. And the prophets remind the people of this more and more. Not only will God restore them to their land, he is making with them a new covenant. And in this new covenant, God promises to change the hearts of the people, to give them his very spirit, to dwell among them, and to give them the ability to, the ability to obey. And so as the fulcrum shifts and this dark cloud of exile is replaced by the bright light of the new covenant, the people of Israel are called to trust God and to obey. Sin and disobedience had gotten their parents, their former generations, into the exile. But now, the people living in exile and emerging out of it are the second and third generations of those people. And they have to choose this day whom they will serve. Will they make the same mistakes as their forefathers, or will they choose to follow God? Ezra sets the stage for their decision. Just as he promised in Isaiah and Jeremiah, God raises up Cyrus, the king of the entire world at the time, and he brings about God's plan. By the way, I promise I'm not just reteaching Ezra. Al did a fine job with that, and we don't need to reteach Ezra. But it's vital to the context of Haggai for us to spend a little bit of time there this morning. In Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, he who is God in Jerusalem." And so Cyrus permitted God's people to return. They returned home and they rebuilt God's temple, or he allowed them to. He wanted them to. 
And the exiles did return. Around 50,000 people returned from exile to their homeland in Israel. And they began to rebuild what had been destroyed, starting with the altar, then beginning work on the temple. And they started well, but then opposition came. And we read in Ezra chapter 4 that adversaries from the lands surrounding Judah heard of the rebuilding of the temple, and they arose against God's people. And Ezra 4.24 tells us that, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And mark that phrase down, the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Because Cyrus allowed Israel to return in 539 or 538 B.C., And the second year of the reign of Darius is in 520 B.C. That means that while Israel began well, returning to the land, beginning work on the altar, beginning work on the temple, they then turned aside from that work for nearly 20 years and began 20 years of disobedience to God's specific uh, command to them. So then think back to the exile. Why was the nation of Israel in exile? Well, Judah was exiled to Babylon because of their disobedience, specifically their immorality, their injustice, and perhaps most prominently, their idolatry, worshiping worshiping false gods and also trusting in false powers. The people of Israel and Judah were notorious for worshiping the idols of the foreign nations instead of worshiping God, and notorious for trusting in those foreign powers instead of trusting in God. Now, as God brings the nation back from exile, he gives them the choice. Will you follow me, or will you be like your exiled parents? And sadly, we see that they are reverting back to form and fearing the nations around them more than they are fearing God. But then comes Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And so at the moment of crisis, with the future of the nation on the line, God brings Haggai to speak the truth. And this is the background of Haggai. The prophet writes to a nation living in the afterglow of the glorious triumphant return from the exile that God has brought about by his sovereign plan. But he writes at a time of crisis, The nation faces the life-altering decision of whether they will follow God or not. Whether they will continue down the path that once led to exile, or if they will break the chains of their past and instead trust in God. And this book is not just a footnote at the end of the Minor Prophets. It's not just an insignificant, irrelevant message. It's a message that grabs you by the lapels and speaks frankly. You can trust God and live where you can turn away from him and die. And at the center of this stark warning lies the theme with which we started, the presence of God, specifically his presence in the temple. And Ezra reminds us that the express purpose of Judah's return was to rebuild God's temple. Notice that in what Cyrus said, I want you to go back and I want you to rebuild this temple. So we should ask, why is this so important? Why does God care so much about his dwelling place in the temple? Why wasn't he more focused on reestablishing the people in the land or returning Israel to prominence as a nation in the global scene? 
And these are some of the questions that we'll be able to answer as we go through the book of Haggai of why this is so important for God to do. So now, aided with the background of the historical and the covenantal setting of what God is doing, how this relates to the promises, the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, the setting of the history of Israel, we're now equipped to move into the outline of the book and see what the actual content of Haggai has to say. Now, Haggai is divided into five major sections, and four of these are messages from the prophet to the people, and one of these sections is a description of how the people responded to one of those messages. And each of these can be summarized with a command and then a reason for the command. Each section gives a charge to the people, but also describes the reason why. That's what we'll look at this morning, a command and the reason why. And as we go through each of these sections, we'll also be tracing the theme of the temple. Because as he goes through... In each of the sections, God reveals a little bit more about why he values his presence in the temple. What is at stake? What is going on in his mind that he would care about this so much? And why we must value the presence of God even today. Now, the first section of the outline of Haggai is seen in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And this first prophetic message from Haggai to the people can be summed up by saying, rebuild the temple. God must be glorified. He gives the command, rebuild the temple. And the reason is, God must be glorified. And we'll dig into the meat of this section in a moment. But first, look at some of the details that Haggai uses to open up his message in verse 1. He says, in the second year of Darius the king, and remember, we read that in Ezra. That was how long they waited till they rebuild it. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, On the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, the first day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius was August 29th, 520 B.C., which means we're rapidly approaching the 2,543rd anniversary of this message from Haggai. And I think Haggai specifies the date so closely because he's wanting to highlight how long it's been since they returned from the exile. It's been nearly 20 years, and he wants them to know that. He wants to even mark the day that this message from the Lord came. (coughs) He's saying that these people have had time to rebuild the temple again if they desire but they've proven that they really, that's not what they really wanted to do. But in this first verse, Haggai also introduces the audience that he's speaking to. First, he introduces Zerubbabel, who is the current governor of Judah. And though he is an important figurehead at the moment, he's also impotent. He is the governor of Judah. He's not the king. He doesn't really have much power. But it's interesting because he is in the direct line of descent from David. He has royal bloods, of the blood of the kings in his veins. And though he's impotent at the moment, he is the heir to the throne of David. His grandfather, Jeconiah, was the one who was the king of Israel when Judah went into exile. So Zerubbabel is introduced first. But second, there's Joshua, the high priest. And so by introducing these figures, the governor of Judah, Zerubbabel, and then Joshua, the high priest... 
Haggai is addressing the political and religious leaders of the day. He's challenging them to set the right course for the people. Evil kings and immoral priests had led the nation into exile to begin with. And so now we ask the question of how will their current kings and priests, who are the heirs to this royal throne and priesthood, how will they lead the nation now at this time of crisis? Haggai's message to them begins in verse 2. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say their time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And the heart of Haggai's first message to the people is a rebuke. It's a challenge. The opposition to the rebuilding of the temple is not the only reason that they have failed to rebuild. The people of Israel have grown complacent. They've grown selfish and self-centered. They have not spent the last 20 years sniveling in fear. They've been productive, but they've established their own households. And not only that, they've been living in luxury, paneling their homes with expensive wood. And Israel is showing their true colors, and it looked a lot like their forefathers who were sent into exile. You can ask the question, did the exile teach them nothing? Did they learn nothing from this discipline that they went through for 70 years? And Haggai kind of asked that same question. You notice that he doesn't just give them a rebuke. He asks a question to get them thinking. Is it good for you to be living in paneled houses? Is it good that there's no temple? You'll notice Haggai doing this throughout the book. He is a master uh, author in what he's saying. He asks a lot of questions to prick the consciences of the people who are listening to show the lunacy of what they have done. And in these verses, we see two more prominent motifs. First, notice the repeated references to God speaking. The word of the Lord comes to Haggai. Thus says the Lord of hosts, etc. And in two short chapters, just 38 verses, Haggai refers to God speaking over 30 times. And he does this to remind his listeners that God has spoken to them much. He spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. He spoke to the nation throughout their history. He has spoken words of rebuke and of hope through the prophets while they were in exile. The nation must listen to the words of God, not to the words of men, not to the words of their own sinful heart. They must listen to the words of God and live. But inasmuch as Haggai is highlighting God's speech, He's also highlighting God's name, because notice what he calls God. He says that the one who speaks is the Lord of hosts. This title is repeated 14 times, nearly every other verse in Haggai. It's clearly pointing to a significant aspect of God's character. The Lord of hosts, or Yahweh Sabaoth in Hebrew, it points to God being the master and commander of a great host of angels, a great angelic army. It speaks to his unmatched power and authority. And so it is not Haggai who comes with a message to the nation. It is the Lord of hosts, the ruler of the universe, the one who commands the kings of the earth, who has just shown his power by moving the emperor of the world to accomplish God's own plan. The Lord of hosts is talking. Listen up. And as if this was not sufficient reason to obey him and rebuild the temple, 
God gives more reason for them to listen in verses 5 through 11. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. In this section, we encounter two of the five commands to consider in the book. After convicting the heart with his questions, the prophet now turns to the, turns to the mind and compels his listeners to consider, to meditate, to think about these things. And specifically here, he wants them to consider the past 20 years. Their harvest has always paled in comparison to what they planted. This is not by accident. Their appetites have outpaced their portions. They've had droughts and famines in the land, and this is God's own doing. This is not just happenstance. God takes the credit for the drought in verses 9 through 11. And as he goes through these descriptions of their land, again, they're not arbitrary descriptions. They are pulling directly from the curses of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 of what God said would happen to them if they disobeyed his commands. He is reminding them of the possibility of exile. And he's saying, do you really want to go back? Will you so quickly return to this? Verses 7 through 8 help us see the rationale behind God's passion for his temple that he is commanding them to rebuild. God tells us explicitly why he desires his temple to be rebuilt, so that he may take pleasure in it, and that he may be glorified. And at the end of the day, it's as simple as that. Why does God care so much about dwelling in the midst of his people? Because he enjoys it. Because he is glorified in it. And think about that. God takes pleasure in dwelling in the midst of his people. He likes it. He likes dwelling with us. He is glorified in it. And multiple times throughout the Old Testament, God explained that he was not acting for the sake of the people, but for his own name's sake, for the sake of his own glory. God is glorified by dwelling in the temple, dwelling in the midst of his people. He is glorified when his presence is seen and felt, and he loves it. He enjoys it. This is reason enough for Israel to rebuild the temple. And this is reason enough for us to value and to consider God's presence among us today. So that is the first section in the book of Haggai. But the second is an intriguing one. Because in a response that we don't always see in the prophets... Verses 12 through 15 show the overwhelming obedience of the people, starting with Zerubbabel and Joshua, the leaders who were called to direct them. The second section of the book can be, can be titled, Fear the Lord. God is with you. 
They're commanded to fear the Lord, and the reason is God is with you. Let me read verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Things truly looked dire at the beginning, but now we see not only the obedient repentance of the people, but also the gracious outpouring of love from God. It takes only 23 days for the nation to respond in faith and to begin rebuilding the temple. And this time is truly not that long when you consider the undertaking it would have been to consider the options, to weigh the consequences of the outside opposition, and then mobilize an entire nation to begin working on the temple. Zerubbabel and Joshua, joined by the righteous remnant of the people, obeyed God's command. And verse 12 specifies that they feared the Lord. They understand they shouldn't be fearing this outside opposition. They should fear the Lord of hosts. That's where their true fear should be directed. They shouldn't give in to their selfish desires and pamper themselves. The Lord of hosts is at hand, and he is homeless. They need to take action. And this response shifts the book from a tone of rebuke in the first 11 verses to a tone of encouragement. We find the first words of encouragement in verse 13. When God, the Lord of hosts whom they fear, says that he is nearby. He says, I am with you, declares the Lord. On the one hand, this too is a warning. God is present and he will judge the disobedience of his people. But in a greater sense... This is God reminding them that he is with them for their good. He is with them to protect them, to love them. God wants to be with them, and the Lord of hosts is on their side. Whom should they fear? This is also a covenantal phrase that we see all throughout the Old Testament up to this point. In the instructions for the tabernacle in Exodus 29, 45, God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. In describing the blessings that he would provide for obedience to his words in Leviticus 26, 12, he says, and I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. In the vision of Isaiah 7, <clears throat> we see <clears throat> that God keys in on the idea of the Messiah who will come as Emmanuel, God with us, bringing God's presence to his people. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah speak of the new covenant in similar terms, promising the same thing over and over and over. God will dwell with his people. He will be with them. And so do you see why God wanted them to build the temple? Because God delights in dwelling with his people. He wanted to be with them. It's part of his redemptive plan. When Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden, God did not begin a plan of salvation that merely sought to justify people and leave them on their own. 
God's desire from the very beginning has not only been to save people from their sins, but also to dwell with them. How amazing is that? This is the love of God. What joy and confidence must the Israelites have felt as they obeyed God and began work on the temple, then heard the prophets say, God is with you. Now, all of chapter 1 occurs in the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king. As we move to chapter 2, we move about one month later when the word of the Lord comes to Haggai again. The, the section takes place on the 21st day of the seventh month, and that would have been one of the final days of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a feast of celebration for God's goodness and his provision in the harvest. But up till now, the people didn't really have much to celebrate, because remember, all of their harvests were halved. Everything that they had planted didn't grow very well. They didn't have much to celebrate because of their sin. But now Haggai, who remember, his name means festal, maybe a reminder of these celebrations, he now gives them a word of encouragement. And as they celebrate again, this time they have something to rejoice about. Now this section in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, it is another section of encouragement. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people are still obeying, and God urges them on. And this section can be titled, Be Strong. God is coming. Be strong. God is coming. Let me read verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Ezra chapter 3 tells us that when the nation made their first false start on building the temple... Many who had seen the temple of Solomon before it was destroyed by Babylon, they wept because they realized how insignificant this new temple was in comparison to what they had seen before. Haggai speaks to this heart of sadness in verse 3 by asking more questions as he speaks to their heart. Those of you who saw the first temple, how does this one compare? Is it inferior? And as they nod their head, yes, he says, that's no matter. Be strong. Work hard. This is what God is calling you to do. And look at the reason that the prophet gives to hold fast. He, once again, the Lord says, I am with you. This is not a, a fanciful suggestion of a powerless prophet. It is a declaration from the Lord. He declares it. Then he describes how God is with them. 
He is with them according to the covenant that he made with them on Mount Sinai. And now you can ask all of the kids in youth group. They'll know this. The prepositional phrase according to is my second favorite prepositional phrase. I love this in scripture. If you want to find out my favorite, you got to ask them. They'll know that one too. But according to means to the extent of or just like. And so to the extent that God was with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt, just like he was faithful and present with them there, so he is now according to his covenant. The people have nothing to fear. And here we also see another reason that God values the temple so much, because his spirit is in their midst. And I don't think it's coincidental that Haggai records God stirring up the spirit of the people in verses 13 and 14 in chapter 1, when he said the spirit of Zerubbabel, the spirit of Joshua, the spirit of the people were stirred up. I don't think that's a coincidence. God is saying, my spirit is stirring up the spirit of the people because it's the spirit of God who dwells in their midst. God's presence is seen in God's spirit. Now, verses 6 through 9 in chapter 2 describe another reason for them to be strong. And this is God's plan for the future. In the future, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all lords, will shake the kingdoms of the world. He will shake the world itself, and he will fill his house. He will fill it with two things. The deserved earthly treasures, the silver and gold and tribute from the nations that he will receive, and he will fill it with his glory. Now, there's a glimmer of a reference to the silver and gold that Cyrus sends back with Israel of saying, look, he's already filling it. But more fully, this refers to the great and glorious restoration of the temple in the millennial kingdom, a time when the nations of the world will pay tribute to the King Jesus as he reigns. God will increase his glory and bring peace to the world. So do you see why God cares about dwelling in his temple? Consider his plans for the future. But let's move to the fourth section of Haggai. And this is seen in verses 10 through 19. These verses can be summarized by saying, Hold fast. God is blessing you. Hold fast. God is blessing you. Let me read these verses. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? 
Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Now in the ninth month, two months after the previous message, Haggai once again uses questions to demonstrate a crucial truth about God's presence in the temple. He says, if you have something holy and it touches something else, does that holiness transfer? And the priests say, no, it it doesn't. Then he says, if you have something unclean and it touches something else, does that uncleanness transfer? And they say, yes, yes, it does. These were well-known truths from Leviticus. So what is Haggai getting at? Well, he's saying that just as holiness doesn't transfer by proximity, so merely having the temple building in their midst did not make the people holy. Just as uncleanness is contagious, so also their seemingly righteous works were actually tainted with sin. What he's calling them to do is to build the temple, reject their sin, and to trust in God for their holiness, not for merely having a bunch of stones in their midst. Once again, God reminds them of the covenant curses that he had brought upon them due to their lack of obedience in building the temple. But then in verse 18, he asks them to consider something else. Consider what it was like before you obeyed. And then consider what it's been like since then. It's only been a few months since they repented of their sin and obeyed out of their fear of the Lord. And as God says in verse 19, what they have planted this year hasn't even produced a harvest yet. And you begin to see the wheels turning in their head. Hey, we're obeying, but we're still in a drought. Are we doing the right thing? Is God really there? Is God really faithful? They might be tempted to think that God has left them high and dry, but this is not the case. God says, from this day on, I will bless you. He's calling them to trust in him, to provide for their needs now that they are obeying. This is the motivation they needed to continue. They're not making the wrong decision. Their obedience is bringing blessing from God, not as a quid pro quo that God says, well, you obey, I'll bless you. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. No, this is a gracious gift from their covenant God. God promised Abraham that he would bless him and his descendants. And God is saying, look what I'm doing to you now. Keep trusting me. Keep obeying. They need only continue to trust in God. And this section allows us to see another glorious truth that underpins God's desire to dwell with his people. And that is the nature of holiness. The temple building didn't make people holy. Only God can make people holy. As we saw in Leviticus, when God dwelt with his people, they feared for their lives. Because God's holiness can't coexist with sin. In his grace, God instituted the sacrificial system as a means to cover that sin. And so think about this. For the entire time that they were in exile, for the 20 years since they had returned... The people had not been utilizing this grace from God. They didn't have a temple. And and even in the time of exile, they didn't have a temple. They weren't offering sacrifices. They didn't have a way to atone for their sin. Again, the sacrifices didn't forgive them of their sin, but it demonstrated their faith in God, that God would forgive them. And they had been neglecting, they had been unable to use this grace from God for that entire time. God says, hey, I want to make you holy. I want to sanctify you. I want to forgive you. Make this temple so that we can make that happen. God desires to dwell with his people so that he can make them holy. Now, the final section of Haggai is found in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And this section can be titled, Rejoice. God is establishing the kingdom. 
Rejoice. God is establishing the kingdom. Let me read these four verses. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overflow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now this message comes on the same day as the previous message did. While the prior message was directed at the priesthood to Joshua and his priests, this message focuses in on Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, the heir to the throne of David, who currently lacked much power at all. And what is God's message to him? Though you are small and powerless, the Lord of hosts is not. God will accomplish his purposes and bring the nations to nothing. And this message points to the future and to a time when God will bring all nations into submission to him. But to Zerubbabel and to the Israelites of his day, this message would have encouraged them to continue in their obedience to God in light of this future event. He is reminding them, the Lord of hosts is on your side. But God also speaks directly to Zerubbabel. And he promises to raise him up and to exalt him and to treat him like a signet ring. A signet ring was a sign of authority, specifically meant to show that the bearer of the ring, whoever has the ring, they hold the authority of the person who owns the ring. In Genesis chapter 41, 42, Pharaoh shows that Joseph has the ability to act on his authority by giving him the royal signet ring. Joseph can act on the behalf of Pharaoh because he has the ring. Now, saying that Zerubbabel is God's signet ring is to say that he bears the power and authority of God. And this is a powerful message, but Zerubbabel would have understood this in even a deeper sense. Remember, he is descended from the last king of Judah, Jeconiah, also known as Jehoiakim. And he, Jehoiakim, has the infamy of being the king whose wickedness finally brought about the exile into Babylon. In Jeremiah 22, verses 24 through 27, God delivers a stern rebuke to Jehoiakim. He says, As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on, the, on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom, of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans." I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. This is a message of why he sent them into the exile. But did you catch it at the beginning? Because God refers to Jeconiah as a signet ring, one that he would tear off and throw into exile. And so Zerubbabel would have been intimately aware of this prophecy about his grandfather. And when he hears God now tell him that unlike his grandfather, who was a signet ring cast into exile, now Zerubbabel is a signet ring that God has chosen. This would have filled him with hope, overwhelmed him with love and the faithfulness of God. 
And, and remember, he's a signet ring, not because he's earned this, but God says because he has chosen him, because he wanted to. That is a message of hope. And this is the last aspect of the, the presence of God in Haggai. God cares about his presence among the people because it is linked with the Davidic throne, the messianic ruler. Not only will God reestablish his temple, he will reestablish his kingdom. And he will do so through the line of Zerubbabel, not by restoring the physical throne in Jerusalem quite yet, but by preparing the way for the true king, the true heir of David, to dwell with his people. And if you look in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, you'll find Zerubbabel listed in the genealogies of Jesus Christ, the messianic king, the word of God who dwelt among us. God chose Zerubbabel and used him to bring the true king into the world to dwell with his people. And so that is the book of Haggai. It doesn't tell us the outcome of their efforts, but from Ezra, we know that four years after they began the work of the temple, they finished God's message of rebuke and encouragement was effective, and their obedience endured. Praise the Lord. His message worked. Now, the message of Haggai is incredibly specific to the people of Israel in 520 B.C. Over the course of four months, they received four words from the Lord that compelled and encouraged them to rebuild the temple. But for those of us who do not live in 520 B.C., who are not Jews, who are not called to rebuild the temple, Haggai is still incredibly meaningful and applicable. Do you value the presence of God? Have you considered it? Does it mean anything to you that God desires to dwell with you? Does it compel you to obey? Does it encourage you to be faithful? This morning, let us meditate on the presence of God and respond as the Israelites did in faith and in joy and in trust. That is all for this morning. You are dismissed.